Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Soledad O'Brien to the show today. She is an award-winning journalist, speaker, author, philanthropist, and mom who anchors and produces the Hearst Television political magazine program, Matter of Fact. She is the founder and CEO of Starfish Media Group, also reports for HBO Real Sports, the PBS NewsHour, WebMD, and has authored two books, She has appeared on networks Fox, Oxygen, anchored and reported for NBC, MSNBC, and CNN. She's won numerous awards, including three Emmys and the George Peabody Award. Newsweek Magazine named her one of the 15 people who make America great. With her husband, she is also the founder of Powerful, foundation that helps young women get to and through college. Welcome to the show, Soledad. Thank you so much. Why, when you put it that way, I feel like I've done a lot, but you know, in right. It doesn't really feel that way. Sometimes you just, when people read my bio, you know, I'm always like, I wish my mom could hear that because she thinks I do nothing. Right. right? right. It's kind of compressing like 30 something years into a couple of paragraphs. So maybe that's fine. Maybe. But, you know, I, I actually, uh, I'm before we jump into this conversation, I do something called uh, bullish and bearish. So it's a way for me to sort of loosen up the guest, not that you don't do this for a living and you're normally on the other side. So this will be fun. But right. I'm going to ask you three quick questions and you can just answer bullish and bearish and just in full transparency. It's really hard to get a single word answer out of my guest. So if you want to. <laughs> I'm going to do know. a single word answer. Okay, we're going to go for it. All right, ready. First one, bullish or bearish? All right, first one is being an entrepreneur is a mindset. Bullish. Yeah, I figured you'd say that. All right, the second one is, uh, I'll be interested to see if you'll be able to just say a one word answer. Okay, so robot reporters. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, so now they're doing like AI capturing all kinds of you know, yes, quote unquote yes. sources and putting together a news story. Very bearish. I've actually seen that uh, years ago. Someone showed me the beginning stages of it. And, you know, again, bearish, because obviously reporting is not just reading words, clearly. I mean, we already have that in human beings. You don't need a robot for that. Right. All right. All right. The <laughs> third one is a little more softball. I love softball. Yo-Yo Ma is the best cellist alive today. Oh, my God. Bullish. I was going to get it backwards. Bullish. He's amazing. Wasn't he great? He was great. So he's like an amazing person. I mean, I really enjoyed chatting with him. We we had that conversation the other day and he's just so, he's just, you know, and it it was only like, what, 22% about the cello. Yeah. So we, uh, so for the listeners, we had uh, Soledad uh, host a conversation with Yo-Yo Ma at a recent uh, Salesforce event. And uh, it was really fascinating. He sort of took us through Bach and Soledad was sitting there like this. It was almost like an eight-year-old, like watching this master. And and then you almost forgot you were having a, there was, you know, 3,000 people around you. You were just transfixed on him. It was so amazing to watch. Yeah, he was amazing. I, I don't, I'm not much of a musician. I mean, I played the flute really badly. And I also don't really understand music in a way. I, I think there are people who really think in music and can write music and, and can create, you know, sort of multifaceted musical compositions. I, I can't do any of that. But I'd love understanding people's process, whether they're writing a play or composing a symphony or just pulling together sort of all the pieces in an orchestra. I just, I find that fascinating. So when he talks about his process, I think it's so, I think it's so interesting. 
Well, I think it's also just to your point, it's applicable to all kinds of other things in life. You know, like I am not musically inclined at all. However, you know, the way uh, you just laid that out, right? The way people deconstruct things, put them back together in their mind and then sort of form something that's new and innovative and interesting on their own merit, right, is, is what it's all about. Yeah. And, and, you know, he talked a lot. I thought it was interesting the degree he talked about partnerships in music. Like, who do you want to connect to? And who are you creating this for? And who's your audience? And and how do you leverage what you're doing to make sure that you're bringing in the kind of people who need to hear your message, right? I wouldn't have said before our interview, I am an aggressively interested, you know, cello listener. And yet when you begin to understand his thinking and his backstory, suddenly you really care about the music, you care about him, you care about his process. I just think he's fascinating. Well, I think that lends itself to uh, one of your superpowers, which I would say is storytelling. Um, Early in my career, I found it as one of my superpowers. And I feel like we are kindred spirit in that sense, because, uh, you know, like what you just said, it's about the story that gets people and draws people in. But, you know, your journey of being a journalist and all you've been able to accomplish in that, you know, 30 years in a 45 second intro (laughs) Um, it started in a totally different place. Like you were, you were beginning your educational path uh, to going to med school, which, right. So one day you woke up and said, that's not for me. Yeah. I just wasn't passionate about it. And I really feel grateful to this day that I, I recognize that I wasn't passionate about it because I think a lot of people go down a path and they sort of churn away at it and they work hard at it. And it takes a long time before you say, you know what? I actually, I don't love this like I need to love this. I kind of found that pretty early on, which was wonderful. And that allowed me then to be able to pick something else that I ended up really loving. And I don't think you love every single part of every single job that you have. But I think there's a nugget, a core, where you're like, well, I love this. I might not like this city. I might not like even this company that I'm working for. I might not like filling out my timesheets or whatever. But I like a big chunk of what I get to do. And I really found that in journalism. And so how did you land at that TV station? You know, I guess it's been 30 something years ago, right? You just, okay, I don't want to be in medical school anymore. What, what am I, what did you go through a thought process of what am I interested in? What do I think my superpower is? I what? literally, Harvard had a book called the Harvard Guide to Careers. <laughs> I took it out. It's a little red book at the time. And I opened it up and I was like, yeah, I shouldn't be a math professor. Nope. Shouldn't do physics. No. And I thought, well, maybe I could do advertising. I figured I always liked telling stories and I thought I was good in in, with words. Um, and I had a good science background because I had been taking all these science classes. So I was trying to figure out what could I do? So I just started working at a TV station. It was over the summer and uh, I was working as um, like a, a proctor in the dorms at Harvard summer school. And so I volunteered to work at a TV station. So it worked out great because I could eat at the Harvard dining hall and I could work, you know, back then internships were free internships. So I was, you know, had a place to live and a place to eat, but I could also go back and forth. And it was really, it was really wonderful. And so what point in time I was listening to, uh, uh, somebody else who's in journalism and, and they, and, you know, and they, uh, so who's a friend of mine and, and they were saying one day there was sort of this crossroads, right. Where this opportunity showed itself and she jumped. Right. And it was 
it was sort of I'm behind the camera to I'm going to go in front of the camera. What was there that moment where you can really remember? Like, I remember the day when something happened or something showed itself and I took a risk and did it and then found your, your sort of your career path. I don't think it was taking a risk. I mean, I, I left school, but I didn't feel like I'm taking a risk. And my parents absolutely had no intention of allowing me like sit on the couch and eat Cheetos. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so the non-risky thing seemed to be, well, let me get a name. Let me see if I can get a job in TV. Let me try this other thing. Because I think if I keep heading down this path at an expensive school, it's going to be a real mistake. And I, I loved it. I, 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 what I, it was, I fetch coffee. I get people sandwiches. I answer phones. I run errands. I move, you know, do stuff with tapes. I help edit just every kind of entry level TV job. And I really, really enjoyed it. So I never felt, I don't think I really felt that I was taking risks until more recently in my career when I left, I was working at CNN about six years ago and I left to start my own company. And I think I felt that way because, you know, that's when you have skin in the game, right? You have, you, you, it costs money to, to, to launch a business and launch an organization and really think about what you want to do. And you have to say, no, I mean, people would come to me and say, you know, do you want to go do, you know, your show, but someplace else or your show, but between two and four o'clock on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I was just like, I don't want to do the same thing. And, and that was probably the first time that I started really feeling like I am saying no so that I can jump and do a thing that I really have no idea what I'm doing. But at some point, right, I, I, I mean, I'm making a huge assumption here. I don't actually know your answer, right? But I, I'd say, you know, I, I, I've heard this statement where you can't be what you don't see. And so if we go back at that point in time, you're going from fetching coffees and running errands, right, to being in front of the television, right, and being in front of the camera. Was there somebody who believed in you that said, I think this is what you should be doing? Oh and gosh, I, I you know, this, this is terrible to say, but... People were so bad. I mean, I think sometimes people don't give enough credit to just hard work and figuring stuff out. So the reason I would watch some of the people who were anchoring and reporting, and I think they're not that good. And this was a big market. And, and they're, they're, they're really well paid and they're okay. And I think I even see that around, you know, in any, in any workplace, right? They're not magic. They're not amazing. And this was not a tiny market. And I remember thinking there was a woman who was doing an interview about the Soviet Union and her questions were terrible. And listen, I, I didn't know anything about the Soviet Union, but I didn't know off the top of my head, I could come up with five decent questions. And to, you know, to some degree, doing an interview show is that. Can you come up with five smart questions? Some of that is just, are you a person who's curious? Some of that is, are you willing to be vulnerable and authentic in your interviews, right? So. So I really was like, well, I could do that, that thing over there. I could do that. And so I started, I was a PA and then I started producing, which I loved and I uh, associate producing. And then I, I started producing, but I really made the transition on camera when I realized like, this is just about reading in and, 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 and um, making yourself knowledgeable so that you can ask thoughtful questions. It's just hard work. It's not, it's not magic to, to be the interviewer. It's not magic to be on camera. It's just doing the hard work. And I think that says everything about being prepared, right? I think telling good stories uh, in, my, in my experience is that you have to know what you're talking about, but not like I need to know a mile deep, right? I have to have an understanding, empathy for what I'm talking about. Like who, you know, what are the players? Like the Yo-Yo Ma story where we started this, right? Like you had no love for that. But once you heard the story, now you have a completely different appreciation. So the ability to draw people in, I think is 
just so magical on so many levels. Yeah, and I think ultimately it's about how do you, how are you curious? And I don't think you have to be an interviewer to do that. I think you just have to be a human being who cares about you know, like, wow, this interesting thing is happening over here. It's one of the reasons I love living in, in New York City. I love living in, when I lived in San Francisco, I love just, I love living in cities because sometimes you so often get to stumble across things that you didn't know you needed or you would like, right? So you, you suddenly say, oh my gosh, Ethiopian food. I, I had no idea, but here I am standing in front of an Ethiopian restaurant and we're going in. Uh, I, I really have found just being curious about experiences is, is, is kind of what's required. If you are a generally curious person, you know, so for our listeners, if you're generally curious, you're interested in something and you want to be better at that skill of storytelling, right? Because I think it is so important if you're a leader in business or, you know, you work for the PTA or you're trying to raise money or you're working for a nonprofit, like it doesn't matter, right? It's, it's all about that connection and communication. What advice would you give to people on, becoming a better storyteller, if you will, if you are really curious, like how do you take that curiosity and turn it into something that you can externally share? Oh my gosh. I'd love to one day teach a class on this because it's actually so easy, but it's, it, it's the same process as it, it took me to become a good reporter, which is you have to get out of your own way. Stop worrying about what you sound like and what you think the story should be. And literally just constantly drill down to what's this story about? So when I go work with nonprofits and, you know, they'll say, well, at our organization, we take young people who are blah, blah. I'm like, oh my God, so many words. Tell me what you're doing. Just what's, what, what are you, what, what are you doing? What is this about? And about five times or six times or 10 times after you've asked that question, they finally blurt out something like, we believe in kids. We believe they have the power to change their own lives. You're like, yes, that's it. Now that's your story. <laughs> that is the chunk the takeaway, now let's create a story on that. But they start with this long, wordy thing about our vision and our, you know, our, our you know, what our, our uh, symbols are and blah, 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 blah. And then eventually they just kind of get, you force them down into what do you do here? So I think that's key. When you, every story you go to, you're like, what is this story? What is this story about? And when I get stuck, when I'm working on a doc or any project, I get stuck like, oh, I'm so stuck. It's because I can't. I can't figure out like, what is this about? What am I saying? What am I trying to say? And once you can, you know, do that exercise, which again, it doesn't have to be professionals. It can just be people pushing you. What's it about? What's it about? But what's it about? But what's it about? You then have the core of what your story is because then you're not telling the story about a program. You're telling a story about young people who believe they can change their own lives, which is far more emotional, far more interesting, and really going to attract people to your mission and what you're doing. And so you've, you've done two things, right? Obviously on the journalism side, but also on the documentary side. So let me, let me start on the journalism side for just a second. What, what would be, you know, when you have done an interview, if you think it's really hard over, you know, 30 years, because you've been doing this a long time is, you know, what interview really sort of rocked you to your core where you felt like, wow, not what I expected or what I expected or, you know, where it just really like stuck with you. Is there any that come to mind? For me, it's always about, am I prepared? Because an interview that's bad, it means I didn't do my homework. And, and you can really prepare well, and it just goes a different direction. And so you're really ready to go, even though you don't ask any of the questions you prepared, because you really understand the person. So you're not surprised, right? You're not like, oh God, I didn't know this about them. So I think for me, it's about really being prepared. 
and also just being confident and comfortable so that you can go where the interview takes you. When I started, I literally would have a list and someone could tell me, you know, I, 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 I killed someone last night. I'd be like, okay, well, on to question four. So what was the theory behind you? I would not listen. You know, the minute they, I, my goal was to ask the question that I had written down. And if they were going to go in a different direction, well, nope, I'm going to keep them on track with what I'm planning to do. And it was so crazy. And the minute you sort of got more comfortable so you could really learn to listen, and have confidence in listening and confidence that you could come up with an interesting question because you're so prepared. Then I think the door opens to doing really great interviews. I mean, I did one once with um, Jim Carrey who just got up in the middle, not in a bad way, but he's a comedian. So he liked to deal with the audience. So he literally got out of the chair and walked away. I'm like, oh, I don't really know what to do. My guest is out talking to the audience. Um, I have done interviews where people were just belligerent and unhappy and yelled at me. Uh, always what works is really having confidence. And a lot of, for me, a lot of the confidence just comes in being prepared. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because, you know, as I was getting ready to launch this podcast and I, I'm normally the one on the other side, not asking the questions, but getting asked the questions. And I was like, God, I don't want to suck. Right. So yeah. like, like, Which, by the way, no one ever goes into it saying, you know, I really am totally fine with being terrible. I'm just good with it. Yeah. Right. You just don't want to do that. So I, I spent time trying to, I, I do often because I speak a lot and I try to hone my craft. So I will watch people who I enjoy their interview styles, but I do two things. I watch them and I don't listen and I listen and I don't watch because it gives me a very different perspective of what's going on. Like, you know, are they playing with their hair too much? Are they touching their glasses? Are they shifting in their chair? You know, and then th that's what I'm paying attention to when I'm watching versus listening because it's distracting me both ways. And like, who's a really good interviewer? And to your point that they're not just reading questions off of a list, that it is really this, you have to listen and you have to listen, not with the intention of answering, but listening with the intention of saying, okay, well, tell me almost like what you said, tell me more, tell me more. Why, why, why? Right. You have to be paying attention. Versus just Oh, yes, they answered. Move on. Yes, now we move on to question five. Okay, we're on question six. Okay, moving on to question seven. And I think everybody who starts, I mean, so many, that's how you do it, right? You just need to get through it. And then and then there's something about going in with no notebook and no pen and no paper and just saying, let's just talk, you know, because it can be unnerving to think, God, I have to have an hour-long conversation without any notes. But it's really, it sort of forces you, I think, to listen, right? You have to listen when you don't go in with your notes. Well, you know, I'm joking when I say this, but, you know, Oprah said once, <laughs> and not to me, obviously, it was on TV, and she was saying to somebody who said, oh, you know, you didn't come back and say hi to me in the green room. This was a long time ago, long before I was doing what I'm doing, and you know what I mean? And this was 20 years ago or something. And Oprah's answer was, she said, well, I didn't want to come in the green room because I didn't want to have this conversation before we had this conversation. Yeah. And I thought... That was brilliant, right? And I always remember that when when I do these uh, podcast interviews, and and you know uh, sometimes the guests uh, team will be like, "Oh, could you send us the questions in advance?" I'm like, "I don't know, I don't know what the questions are. Like, no idea. I mean, I know enough about the person that I have an idea of what I want to talk about, but really, this is where you and I are, you know, imagining that we're sitting having a cup of coffee, in, you know, on a little cafe in New York. Like, that's the way I want it to feel." That's people's anxiety, right? So I always send people like, here's generally what I want to cover. 
And I think because what they're asking when they're asking for questions, they don't really want the questions. And everybody knows when you get the questions, you're actually not as good as when the questions come fresh. So I always say, you know, what they want is a piece of paper <laughs> that says, now you're prepared. You know, so I always tell people, you know, I don't send out questions, but here's kind of what I'm thinking about. I really want to know what motivates you, um, biggest successes, biggest failures, and da 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 da. And I think that helps people be like, okay, you know, I got it. And if there's anything tricky where you'd say, listen, I'm going to ask you about uh, the data from 2014, blah, 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 I want them to feel like they can look it up or they can have it so nobody feels unprepared. I, I don't like to, you know, ever have someone think that they're being sandbagged because they didn't prepare for an interview because I had told them kind of the general topic. But I'm with you. I, I think, you know, you really try, you have to make people comfortable without giving it away. Well, so now I'm going to pivot away from the journalism because I think that those were so many nuggets and, and, and for the listeners, right. It, it's even just talking at work or interviewing someone for a job. I mean, this is all the same sort of cadence that you have to really practice, but you've done an amazing transition uh, many years ago to doing documentaries, which I feel is, it has really raised the level of conversation around some, you know, topics that were way ahead of their time and now very relevant. <laughs> so, uh, but when you think about moving from doing journalism, not that documentaries are not, and, and you were thinking about making that, that change, what, what was your, what was your inspiration to start to do those documentaries? You know, when I first started, it was very basic. CNN had asked me. I was a, a, an employee. They needed someone to do a doc. I said, yes, it sounded interesting. But I really started to love the format, just the amount of time that you could have to dig into a story. I love the idea of interviewing someone. You know, you'd go and do a shoot and you'd take an entire day, maybe two people you could fit into one day. Every interview was three hours. It was amazing. I, I love having that amount of time to really get into the topic versus normally on pieces, you're sort of running in and out. Okay, you know, here are the six questions I've got for you in a short news piece. So I, I just enjoy the luxury of time. And also I like the luxury of getting people the ability to frame their story their own way. You know, it no longer was me telling you 90% of the story. I was just, you know, a, I was a tiny piece of the story and, and their words and their sentiment shaped the story. And I really, really loved that. I just felt like a, a lot of opportunity. What has been the most surprising for you with the response? If you went back in time, sort of when you started to do those documentaries for CNN, what was the most surprising to you when the first one ran? You know, they did so well. And I think historically there's always been this sense of like, well, you know, docs don't really sell and people don't want to die. And it's just not true. People love long form. Most of the work I do is in long form, 14 minutes, 16 minutes. Even as we start doing more branded content, it's amazing to me how many brands now look at this longer form as an opportunity to tell a really good, full, complicated story. And that, you know, three minutes or two minutes or a minute 30 is really not enough. I, I think it's why podcasts are really popular. I think it's why docu-series are really popular because you actually need eight, one hours over, you know, a little bit of time to understand all the nuance of a story. So I think what surprised me was that they did really well because the, the sort of the, the wisdom around the time was that, you know, they wouldn't. And what, what do you think now with, you know, I mean, there's, there's no way I can have sort of someone of your caliber from a journalistic standpoint on the show without talking about where you just think journalism has gone in this sort of siege of 
of everything around fake news, Me Too, the role it's playing, you know, everything. And, and not from a political standpoint, but just as just like this is the job you do as a journalist. Like, how do you feel? You know, I think one of the biggest um, tragedies for me is that because we spend so much time covering what's clearly a very dysfunctional presidency and just messy uh, and I think reporters are flailing and trying to figure out how to cover the president. You, everything else gets left on the table. We just don't cover a whole bunch of stories. I mean, you know, today the narrative is bed bugs. So we're talking bed bugs. You know, I mean, it's just stupidity. So, so every single show will have these really crazy conversations that aren't important. And we have so many important issues. I mean, certainly uh, the uh, environment, uh, incarceration. I mean, there's big, weighty, important issues that everybody should really be learning about and understanding. We just won't cover them, right? Because we're just, it's a zero-sum game. You can't get to it. And I, I have found, interestingly, that brands are interested in opening up those conversations. So, for example, um, if you want to talk about um, maternal mortality with a brand that is sort of interested in that, there's just, that was a time, there was a time when that story would live on TV news nobody's really doing that. But brands are trying to figure out how to tell those stories and wrap their brand around authentic stories versus just, you know, holding up a product. And I think that that's been a very interesting opportunity for us. Yeah. And I would, you know, agree, especially because of where I work. <laughs> we're, we're very much on that side of the fence of, of having a CEO who's very forthcoming on social issues and sort of all the things that, that we stand for as a, as a company. And, and I'd say that, uh, you know, what, what always fascinates me is, is, you know, if you look at when something like own first started, if you remember when Oprah started own, and it was like, we wanted to just be kind of this feel good network, right. To get out of all this bad news and, you know, and it didn't do very well in the beginning, right. It was struggling until it sort of found its way. And so I wonder if now there's a time for that, you know, not, not about balanced, but about just good news. <laughs> If somebody just said, we're just the good news network, we're going to talk about how. No, people have tried that. Listen, because I don't think people want good news. I think people want real news. I don't want good news. I want to really understand issues and their context. I want to really dig into thoughtful conversations. Sometimes I think, you know, yes, having a little kicker of something sweet that happened, that's lovely. There was a picture of an otter the other day with a baby otter on her belly. I love that. That was lovely. But I don't want my day filled with that. I don't. I want to understand important things that are happening in the world from smart people who I may agree with or I may disagree with, but I'll tell you this, they're smart people and they have something to add to the conversation. I think people are mistaken when they think, you know, good news is what everybody's aiming for. It's, I don't think it is. And, and that's fair. Uh, and I wonder, you know, I wonder, where, where do you think journalism will be 10 years from now, five years from now? Just the art of telling that story in, in your sort of format, right? Whether it's a documentary or... or Yeah, uh, I feel good about it because I think there's so many platforms and certainly digital platforms provide a lot of opportunity. And again, I, I see brands saying, you know, our employees and our, our clients actually really want to have a conversation about opportunity or about education or about the environment or about any million of things that we just should cover, but we don't. So I've, I've been really surprised to see, you know, brands um, coming to us and saying, you know, we really want to tell a story about people who are caregivers, people who volunteer, people who, and, and not the, aren't these good, fabulous people, but actually the tough work of it, the, the, the authentic story of it, that's what they want to do. So I'm, I'm really encouraged by that because I, 
I think news is just going to be yet another platform. Yeah, there was just you know a shift in the uh, from the business roundtable that uh, I don't know if you saw on on changing sort of the purpose of a corporation and moving that from being just totally shareholder profit driven mm-hmm. to being you know better about delivering value to customers, investing in employees, and family and ethical use of of what they're selling and community supporting communities. That's what com- that's what that's what companies used to be, right? They understood. I mean, I think. If you look at a company like Ford, they, they actually needed their employees to be middle class people who could afford to buy cars, right? So, so the goal was this idea, like, if we do well, we all do well. You're part of this company. Uh, I think this movement to where shareholders now kind of drive everything, which, uh, listen, I, I fully understand how that happens. But if your employees are absolutely interchangeable and their happiness is irrelevant. You certainly can't expect good customer service. And listen, in my business, I know I have 11 employees to a a massive business. It really ultimately is, are your people serving your clients? That's what it's about. So you can't say everybody's interchangeable. We don't really care about them and we don't care about their issues, but we want them to provide a fantastic customer service. It won't happen. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that last sentence alone, right, is sort of what floats my boat every day. It's what I try to, you know, let let businesses around the world know that you have to be employee first and, and enable them and empower them to do what's right and best for your customers, and then your customers will follow. And if those two things are in alignment, profits follow. I mean, it's yeah. And so much of work is not, you know, often we do we do contracts with people we want to be in partnership with, and I often will tell them like, you have to decide if you like me and I like you. Because we can put a lot of stuff in a contract, but at the end of the day, you know what's going to make this work? Do we respect each other and do we like each other? I can't. We can't write everything down. And I think sometimes the business contract is the same thing. Uh, we have a, a guy in my office has a son who's probably six years old, and he said, "You know, I really want to take him to see the tennis. We, the U.S. Open is in town." And I'm like, "Then leave at three o'clock and go. You're not going to get an opportunity to do that very often. Your son's going to be seven once, you know, for the year, and and you're going to miss it." So know that the reason, it, you know, know that you have my permission as your boss to go do that. Why? This guy works so hard. I want him to always feel like, hey, I know if I work hard on the other end of it, if I need something, my boss is willing to bend over backward for me. So, you know, I want him to be happy. I want him to feel like I spend quality time with my kid. And if that time's in the middle of a work day, we're going to work it out. I don't think that's, I don't think that's like so incredible. I think that's kind of should be standard. I don't disagree. I think leaders in general are trying to find their way through that. I think they're trying to figure out how do I become, you know, more authentic, more empowering, that I listen more, that I action, that it is really about the people that, you know, and not that they don't feel that way. It's that they maybe haven't been running the business that way. Those are two different things. Um, And so while you say, look, you know, go and do that, I think many people sort of show up at work and feel like they can't do those things. Um, because of- it definitely gets harder, right? When your company is not 11 people, but your company is now 50 people or 100 people or 150 or 4,000 people. Right now, there are rules and structures, but I don't know. I, even with my kids when they were growing up, you know, I'd say to them, do you all want the same thing? Or does everybody want their own thing? You know, because they all want it to be equal, but they don't. They don't. You don't want a pony. <laughs> she wants a pony. You want this thing over here. And really having people understand, like, what makes you happy? to me is, is much more interesting. Well, so, you know, I'm going to start to wrap this up, but 
but that last comment you meant about what makes you happy, you know, what, what motivates you every day, Soledad? What, what gets you up in the morning? Obviously, you have four lovely children and a husband and a family, like outside of the personal side of things, but on the professional side, what, what, get, what gets you up every day? What I find really interesting, I was having breakfast with a friend this morning and he was asking me about, you know, what do I think my job is? And I said, I really, I think I'm a problem solver. I like to solve problems. I like to sort of say, Somebody came to me, whether it's a news story or a branded story or a speech, because people are trying to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we have a conversation with somebody that we want to have in a chair and, and, and being able to be a problem solver, like understanding what we're trying to get to. I, I find that so interesting and so just challenging. And, and of course, at the end of the day, you're like, done, problem solved, check, move on. <laughs> I, I, I love that in, in a way that I think when you have kids, that's like an 18 year conversation, like, yes, off to college, woohoo! but it doesn't happen every day. And I think for me, figuring out how to tell a story, what platform it has to live on and how to do the best job in it, that, that to me is solving problems. And that's what I really like. Well, this has been such an amazing conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And so I, I always wrap this up with uh, one last, uh, well, yeah, one last question and then one last statement. But the last question would be, you know, you, you've you've had this um, blessed opportunity to travel around the world, meet really fascinating and interesting people, cover stories that you know have changed lives. And if you could have, you know, dinner with one, two, or three couple people that are either alive or dead, and you could put that table together, who would it be? Well, you know, here's how I'll answer that because I think. We, we tried to do this with our show, Matter of Fact, uh, that's a, a weekend policy show. And and often I think people will give you that answer with the bold face names. Ah, oh, it should be Jesus Christ and <laughs> Churchill and Mother Teresa. And I actually sort of feel like I what I wanted to do on our show was to dig into issues with the actual people affected, right? So if we're going to talk about homelessness, I want to talk to three homeless people who are very different, maybe a veteran, maybe a mom. Um, who left an abusive spouse, um, maybe a person who just, you know, had drug issues and is down on their luck. Like, and I would want my people around the table to be the actual people who are informed and intelligent versus who we sometimes tap to be the spokesperson. Often we tap politicians, you know, so-and-so is working on legislation and we very rarely hear from the actual people. So in our show, we started saying, we will talk to actual people. If we're going to talk about homelessness, we're going to talk to actual people who've been homeless who can talk about homelessness from a very personal standpoint, or people who are talking about um, issues with healthcare. I, I want to hear them, regardless of where they sit, any side of the aisle. Like, what is their experience? So, I think for me, my my people would be boring people you've never heard of, just because they'd be really of the moment, actual people who have something to share in their personal experience. Um, and not anybody bold-faced name, not a president, not a prime minister, not somebody famous, although I really did love Luther Vandross. He'd be, I'd just have him come in and sit in as well. But, you know, I just think it's about real people's stories. Those are the most compelling stories, I think. That's a great answer. It's the first time I've gotten that answer, which says a lot about you. Because everybody always thinks you right? Everyone always oh, I've gotten that. some great ones, though. I've gotten some great. You know, sometimes people will go back like, oh, my grandfather. or You know what I mean? They'll do a family member or they'll do someone who inspired them to be in the career they're in that's no longer here or someone who touched their life in some way they never met. You know, so sometimes it's that... Uh, you know, that unknown mentor that you like to say, right, that doesn't know they're really mentoring you from afar, even whether they're 
uh, in your circle or not. And so sometimes it's that, but that that's the first time I've gotten that one. And I, and I think just classic to what you do every day. Um, that's why people who have followed your career and, and watch your shows and listen to your storytelling capabilities, that, that that's why that, I think that's the reason that, that you are so special in what you do. Oh, thank you. I so appreciate that. Well, you know, how can people uh, keep in touch with you and follow what you're doing? And, you know, you're super active on Twitter. So, you know, besides Soledad on Twitter, like what, what projects do you have coming up that you'd love everybody to know about? We're doing a great doc. We just started submitting it to festivals that looks at the number of students who are hungry on campus. And I don't mean, hey, I'm living on ramen. I just mean cannot afford to eat, skip meals altogether. It's all tied into the same homeless thing I was talking about, just how hard it is for students to figure out how to pay for the rising cost of college and everything else. It's really, really hard, especially if you're a student in poverty. You know, there in the past, you could get a job and even a middle-class job that you didn't need a college degree for. Those days have changed. So it's been really fascinating to me, um, that story. That's a doc we're working on as well. And then um, and then we just wrapped up another project for uh, HBO that looks at the fix for heat stroke. I didn't realize is just dunking someone in a tub of ice water. But do you know it's not mandated in states where kids have died of heat stroke? like football players, high school football players, they don't mandate it. it costs $105, by the way, online, a tub, $105. And so we take a look at um, just how ridiculous it is that, uh, you know, places where you send your kid to go play football or play sports when it's really, really hot in the preseason, especially down south, um, you know, some of those kids are literally dying of heat stroke. And it could, you, it, it's, it's absolutely does not fail to save your life. And yet kids are still dying. Yeah. And an NFL player just a couple of weeks ago died. Yeah. Or an ex NFL player. Yeah. In that story while he was outside doing work, it's just very, very easy to, uh, especially in this time, right? It's in the end of July, beginning of August in the preseason when your body's not really acclimated. It's, really terrible. Well, I just want to, you know, once again, thank you, Soledad, for being such a wonderful guest on the show today and, and sharing sort of the, you know, your story on storytelling, because I think I'm just, I'm such a fan of helping people figure out how to, you know, really compel and move people to do things, whether it's at work personally or, or professionally. So thank you again for your time and for sharing um, all your great wisdom on the What's Next podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I don't know about you, but that conversation could have continued for another 20 minutes at least. What a pleasure to have Soledad O'Brien on the What's Next podcast. It was really interesting to hear from someone who's been a journalist for 30 plus years, interviewed thousands of people, done documentaries that have you know reshaped the conversation around key stories that are happening uh, in our society and in the world, and to see and listen to the process she goes through in being prepared, being authentic telling stories and not being about the famous, but those that don't get an opportunity to have their story told. So I hope you found that as interesting and fascinating and inspiring as I did. Thank you so much for spending time with me today on the What's Next podcast. Please subscribe, leave some feedback, tell your friends. I appreciate you joining me and I'll look forward to having you back again next time.